Well, good morning, church family, and if this is your first Sunday here at Windsor Road, we're delighted to have you here. Uh, My name is Randy. I'm privileged to serve as the lead minister here at the church. And so this month is Advent. It's a word that means a coming or arrival, and it's a season of preparation for Christmas. And we're looking at uh, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. Um, So... I have two sons, they're 28 and 24. When they were in elementary school, I introduced them to C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, the seven-volume fantasy series uh, about the Pavenzi children, two brothers and two sisters, who are swept up in this other world, this magical world, this world of talking animals, uh, this world that is ruled by what C.S. Lewis, the author of the series, called the, uh, the, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, um, the great and majestic and mighty and untamed but very good lion, Aslan, Aslan, and the children find their way into Narnia at the most unpredictable times in the most unpredictable ways. And while they're just common children uh, in this world, in Narnia, they are kings and queens. And it's just a wonderful series that depicts the teachings of Christianity. And Aslan is this Christ figure. Well, the third book in this series is called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And two of the Pavenzi children are in the beginning of this story as they are swept up into Narnia. They find themselves guests of a rather annoying and bossy and bratty cousin whose name was Eustace. Eustace Clarence Scrub. In fact, the first line of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader goes like this. There was once a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. (laughs) Uh, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, I would tell you about Eustace's friends and what they thought about him, but he didn't have any. He was such a brat. Well, his cousins, uh, specifically Lucy and Edmund, are staying with Eustace, and they really don't want to be there, but they don't have any place else that they can go. They're staying with Eustace, and Eustace is bossing them around. They find themselves in this one bedroom of Eustace's home, and in this bedroom, there is this magnificent painting of this Narnian ship. And it's a tall ship, sails, it's got this um, uh, splendid, spectacular-looking dragon to lead the ship. Uh, And and as the children are looking at this uh, painting, they see it's almost like the water is moving. It's almost like the water is truly 
feeling wet and it's almost like the ship is coming right at you as you're gazing at this picture and looking at it and staring at it and all of a sudden the children flinch back ow it was like a splash of cold salt water uh, uh, drenched them and more and more water came out of the picture and C.S. Lewis says that you couldn't tell whether the children were shrinking or if the picture was uh, growing well all of a sudden it swallows them up and the children fall into the ocean and they're retrieved by Caspian from the Dawn Treader, and their adventures begin. It's a delightful story. <laughs> and it reminds me of John chapter 1. It does. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to John chapter 1. You'll find that on page 886. We're looking at verses 1 through 18 this Advent season. And the reason why this reminds me of John chapter 1 is because the Apostle John tells us that Jesus has entered the picture. Only it's his picture. The artist has stepped into his work of art. The creator has stepped into creation. The author of the story of life has entered the story. And these verses, John 1, 1 through 18, constitute what's called the introduction or the prologue. And it's as if the narrator comes out before a dramatic performance, before the curtain opens and says, ladies and gentlemen, before our performance, I need you to know something about the main character. In fact, if you don't know this about the main character ahead of time, what you're about to see, what follows, might confuse you. I'm going to give you the identity of the main character. I want to tell you who the main character is. And that's what John does. John tells us that the main character, Jesus of Nazareth, is God. And he answers a very important question. Who is God? What's God like? What's it like? To know the living God, who is God like? And in doing so, we learn something about ourselves. And John also tells us that too. And specifically in verses 9 through 13. We learn who God is. We then learn who we are. And then we learn our relationship with him. And I just want to walk through these three questions. Who is God? Who am I? What's my relationship with him? As we explore John 1, 9 through 13. John tells us who God is. Jesus of Nazareth is God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Before John goes anyplace else in his gospel, 
He challenges us with this all-important question. How did all that we see come about? How did all of this get here? I don't know about you, but I find myself going from activity to activity to activity to activity, appointment, 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 event, 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 so much so that I really, I need to push the pause button. Why are we here? How did all of this come about? It's, it's a very, very important question because it deals with the purpose of life and what my purpose is in life and, 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 and what God's intentions are for me. So let's talk about Christmas trees for just a minute. Okay? Let's talk about these Christmas trees for just a minute. Now, in about three minutes... You're going to ask yourself, where is he going with this? And when you ask yourself that, you'll be right where I want you to be, okay? But let's talk about these Christmas trees for just a minute. How did those Christmas trees get there? Well, someone put them up. That's how they got there. That's right. I, I saw that. I witnessed that. That's how those trees got there. But you know what? Nobody asked that question in September. Nobody said to me, Randy, how did those Christmas trees get there in September? Do you know why? They weren't there. That's why. You see, nothingness needs no explanation. Which is why, out in the foyer, between services, no one said to me, Randy, when did that magnificent chandelier get hung from the ceiling? Nobody said that because it's not there. That's why. Nothingness needs no explanation. Now then, but once it comes into being, once it's there, then the question's on the table. Now, some people say, well, it's always been there. Uh, it's always, it's, it's, it, it, it's just been there forever, eternal. Well, I'm not so sure about that. And you know why? Because of the second law of thermodynamics. That's why. Now, what, what's the second law of thermodynamics say? Well, let's go back to these Christmas trees. I want to talk about these Christmas trees here. The second law of thermodynamics says that uh, when you put your tree up and you hang your ornaments and then you string your lights, inevitably, the lights don't work when you plug them in. That's the second law of thermodynamics. Okay. And then you got to fiddle with it and figure out which of those lights is the right light. And, or then if you just like me, I just go buy another string of lights. That's what I do. It's easier that way. But that's the second law of thermodynamics. The second law of thermodynamics says, uh, let me see, what's the exact definition? Processes taking place in a closed system always tend toward the state of equilibrium. There it is. What did he just say? He said... Batteries die in the middle of a service. That's what he said. He said that your hot cup of coffee, if you let it alone for 30 minutes, will cool down. He said a hot bubbly casserole, if you leave it out overnight, it'll get cold the next morning. That's what he said. He said if you don't water your plants, they'll die. 
That's the second law of thermodynamics. It seems that everything is dependent and contingent on something, you know? If you don't fix that dent in your car right now, next spring, there'll be rust. Uh, next spring, the public works department is going to be busy filling in the potholes. Why? Well, because of the freezing and the thawing second law of thermodynamics. Everything seems to be dependent and contingent. All right? Now then, if everything sort of is relying on each other and dependent on each other and contingent, then, okay, well, well like, what's holding everything up? What's sustaining everything? I mean, if, if they all sort of feed off of one another and need one another and are dependent upon one another, then, yeah, but what about the whole? What's holding up the whole? Well, if you were to take the entire universe and put it on this stage, planets, galaxies, sun, moon, earth, Christmas trees. You put it on this stage and then you, you drew a big circle and you asked the question, what caused all of this to come into being? Would a thinking person conclude that the answer to that question can be found inside the circle, on the stage? where within there's dependency and contingency, or would a thinking person conclude that the answer would be found outside the circle, off the stage, where, where, where we're talking about something that's self-caused, independent, and by definition, eternal and all-powerful? What do you think? Friends, those descriptors come dangerously close to a working definition of God. And that's where John is. See, I told you we'd get back to John. John 1, verse 3. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him, verse 4, was life. And the true light, verse 9, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. The Apostle John wants us to know something that's not fiction. John does not give us this as an attempt uh, at fantasy. John is recording his faith story of his personal eyewitness experiences with Jesus of Nazareth. And those experiences, he lived with Jesus, he walked with Jesus, he saw Jesus awake, asleep, teaching, the miracles he performed, and he came. This is a monotheistic Jew who has came to the conclusion that Jesus is God in the flesh. The creator has stepped into his creation. And so what we read in John's gospel is our, their eyewitness details. So you see in John chapter 1, verse 39... Uh, John talks about friends who came to Jesus. And verse 39 says, at about the 10th hour. What's that? That's 4 p.m. But why is that there? 
That's an eyewitness detail. That's why that's there. Or just take John chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, why would John need to say at Cana in Galilee? Well, because there were two Canas. And John wants you to know which he's talking about. That's an eyewitness detail. Or when uh, 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 Jesus' uh, enemies in, later on in chapter 2 talk about the temple being uh, 46 years under construction. That's an eyewitness detail. Uh, in John chapter 21, after the resurrection, the disciples go fishing. And they catch a net full of fish. But John doesn't say that they caught a full net full of fish. John says they caught 153 fish. Large fish. What is that? That's an eyewitness detail. John is giving us his faith story, answering the question, who is Jesus? He is God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That's who he is. But why did he come? He was in the world. The world was made through him. He came to his own. Why? Do you know why God came? Because he wants to be with us. That's why. Because he loves us. That's why. That's what Jesus himself would say later on in John chapter 14. He would say that you may be with me where I am. He wants to be with you. What's God like? God. God is like Jesus of Nazareth who wants to be with you. Oh, we know John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever should believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We need to keep Reading to that next verse, John 3, 17. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but so that the world might be saved through him. So Jesus didn't come. Jesus didn't come on a condemnation mission. He came on a search and rescue mission. That's the kind of God he is. And that takes us to our second question then. Who are we? Who are we? Well, John tells us. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. God wants to be with us, but the fact is our world's broken. Nobody disagrees with that. This is a broken world world. Something's wrong with our world. Everybody knows that. John's word for brokenness is 
darkness. Darkness. The light shines in the darkness, John 1, 5 says. In John chapter 3 and in other places throughout John's gospel, this image of darkness and night appear. So uh, in John chapter 3, and, and you need not turn any pages if you're in your church Bibles, page 887, the bottom right-hand corner. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus, there it is, by night. You see that? Why did he come by night? To evade detection, that's why. He was, it was night, chronologically, and yet John's telling us something about the heart of Nicodemus. He was personally in the dark. He was searching for something. He thought he had true joy. He thought he had attained all that he needed to attain in his career. He was a ruler of the Jews. He was a Pharisee. He had reached the pinnacle of his career, and yet there was something hollow. There was something dark in his life, and he only discovered his spiritual darkness by exposure to the light. Later on in John's gospel, we see Judas, one of the 12, who begins to betray Jesus. And in John chapter 13, verse 30, it says that Judas went out, and then it says this little phrase, and it was night. It was night. Well, chronologically, it was night. And yet, John is trying to tell us about the evil that Judas is about to do. Jesus summarized it when he said in John chapter 11, verse 10, but if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. In other words, according to the Apostle John, darkness is not neutral. Darkness is not open. Darkness is not tolerant. A darkness never encourages curious investigation about who God is. Darkness is hostile and partisan. Darkness does not want God, which is why when Jesus appeared, the light of the world, the world didn't say, ah, the light's come. You've arrived. Many were puzzled. Uh, many rebelled. Many mocked. Many were repulsed. Many hated him. John 7, 5 says even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. So the light's arrival did not compel a universal turning to him. And why is that? Jesus tells us in John chapter 3 verse 19. The reason why is because people love darkness more than they love light. John 3:19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Huh. They love the darkness. You know, Christianity never teaches that you are what you think. Christianity teaches that you are what you love. Uh, excellent book that I recommend by a Christian uh, Philosopher and author called James K.A. Smith. And it's titled, You Are What You Love. And this is what he says. Since our hearts are made to find their end in God, we will experience a besetting anxiety and restlessness when we try to love substitutes. To be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. 
So the question isn't whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is, what will you love as ultimate? And you are what you love. So what do you love? Light or darkness? Darkness is a lethal fantasy lurking in the heart of every human. Darkness is the desire to be what you can never be, God. Darkness is failing to give praise where praise is due. Darkness will cause you to view right as wrong and wrong as right. Darkness will cause you to deny reality because you're afraid to face it. Darkness will make you worry over what you can't control. Darkness will never lead you any, to anywhere good. And darkness will cause you to want to shade the truth or want to redefine truth. Uh, I learned this just this week. So you know the Oxford Dictionary every year has what they call a word of the year. You know, like Time Magazine has person of the year. The Oxford Dictionary has a word of the year. Do you know what the word of the year is in the Oxford Dictionary? The word of the year, here it is. Post-truth. Post-truth. What's that? Post-truth describes those who simply do not care about objective facts as much as they care about feelings when it comes to forming their beliefs. And so here's an example. Um, there is a self-help guru who has a book that's titled, I Have Abandoned My Search for Truth and I Am Now Looking for a Good Fantasy. Okay? Now, definitely meant tongue-in-cheek, but it describes the attitudes of many Americans, including Christians. Because many Christians, and brothers and sisters, I love you. <laughs> I do. But listen to me. Many Christians simply don't care about truth as much as they care about their feelings. And so if, you know, if, a, if a doctrine grounded in biblical truth doesn't feel right, well, then at best it's unimportant. If an ethical stance feels hurtful, i.e. not nice or intolerant, well, then it must be wrong. Brothers and sisters, if we are to search for truth, true truth, capital T truth, then feelings such as the desire to feel nice, the desire to feel comfortable, the desire to feel affirmed, the desire to be included, the desire to feel warm and cozy, the desire to be wealthy and powerful, all of this must take a back seat to reasonable decision-making based on objective truth, true truth. Amen? God never, and my point is that post-truth is a part of darkness. And God never said, let there be darkness. See, darkness is simply the absence of light. So the choice is, and John confronts us with this choice, do I love darkness or do I love light? What do I love the most? And you are what you love. Now, can you imagine having a cure for cancer? And you make it available, but nobody wants it. <laughs> oh, we'll take it, but we're going to take it on our terms. Oh, really? 
Well, here's the good news. God came anyway. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. Most hated him, but some honored him. Most berated him, some believed him. Most rejected him, some received him. And this is where we get to the answer to that third question. It's my relationship with him. Well, John tells us, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So the message of Christianity is not, well, let's just all try harder to work a little harder on this stage, inside this circle. Let's try to give it our own best effort together. And maybe if we try hard enough, we can reform this world to becoming a better place. No, that's not the gospel. Some of you are saying, you know, next year I'm going to turn over a new leaf. You know what? Christianity says you do not need to turn over a new leaf. You don't. Christianity says you need a new root. You need a new root. And so when we gather on Friday nights at Celebrate Recovery, 40 to 50 of us, <laughs> Celebrate Recovery is not about sin management. Celebrate Recovery is not about learning to regulate our hurts, habits, and hang-ups. Celebrate Recovery is not about trying to cut back. Why do you go to Celebrate Recovery? Well, I want to cut back on my compulsive spending. I want to cut back on my use of alcohol. I want to cut back on my pornography. I want to cut back on my anger. There's nothing to celebrate about that. That's not celebration. Let's celebrate recovery. Why do we celebrate? We celebrate because God has taken a stinking, rotten corpse and has said in Christ, live, and we're alive in Christ. We are adopted. We become children of God. We are heirs of the coming kingdom. That is something to celebrate. And that's why the Apostle Paul says, I have a new identity in Christ. I've been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I have a new identity. The core of who I am as a person is not wrapped up in my stuff. It's not wrapped up in my uh, career. It's not even wrapped up in ministry. It's wrapped up in Christ. You see, your identity is the answer to, if I lost this, fill in the blank, I wouldn't know myself. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't know you. I wouldn't know anyone. If I lost this, I would be permanently devastated. And so whatever, whatever is in your blank, that's your identity. And Jesus says, I want to give you an identity as my child. My child. And no one can take that away from you. No one. So you see, you know, I don't worship or give or serve or act with kindness 
or do my work with excellence in order to make God love me. God says he loves me, and that alone empowers me to worship and work and give and serve. Someone put it this way. Jesus came to liberate us from the weight of having to make it on our own, from the demand to measure up. He came to emancipate us from the burden to get it all right, from the obligation to fix ourselves, find ourselves, and free ourselves. Jesus came to release us from the slavish need to be right, rewarded, regarded, and respected because Jesus came to set the captives free. Life does not have to be a tireless effort to establish ourselves, justify ourselves, and validate ourselves. In Christ, I'm his child. And I have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade. God is good. You know this year was the 51st anniversary of a Charlie Brown Christmas. I remember seeing that when I was a little I was a little boy and then I remember my boys seeing that when they were little and a couple years my little granddaughter's gonna see that. And you know there's a very sweet scene in that show where Charlie Brown wants to know what Christmas is all about. And you know who explains, don't you? Linus. He takes the stage. And he quotes the gospel of Luke. It's beautiful. He shares the gospel story. But here's what's interesting. Here's what's interesting. We all know that, you know, Charlie Brown's identified by that crazy striped shirt he always wears. What's Linus known for? That blanket. That silly security blanket. And and throughout the Peanuts series, Lucy and Snoopy and Sally and others conspire to take that blanket away from Linus, but they can't. They tease him. They ridicule him. But Linus refuses to give it up until that moment in the climactic scene when Linus shares what Christmas is all about, he drops his blanket. And, and precisely when he says, fear not. Fear not. And the blanket drops. Charles Schultz was a Christian. And most are convinced that that was intentional. He says that the light of the world has come. Fear not. Emmanuel, God is with us. Fear not. One has come to do what we could never do. Fear not. The light allows us to let go of our false security blankets that we've been grasping onto so tightly and learn instead to cling and trust Him instead because in Him we belong to God. And in Him, listen to me, Jesus Himself says this, in Him the Father loves us with the same intensity that he loves his begotten son. Well, 
what else do you want for Christmas other than that? 2016 has been a crazy year. Has this been a crazy year or what? It's been a world that's been very difficult for us to fear not. But in the midst of fear and insecurity, the true light that enlightens everyone has come into the world. In true peace and true security, in the one true person who has always been, he can still be found. Wise men and wise women still seek him. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, I want to go home too. <laughs> and the beauty of Christmas is that you're bringing home here in the new heavens and the new earth with new bodies. And I want that day to come. 